You're listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. At Southwide Baptist Church, our mission is to boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and thereby lead people to worship God authentically, connect in biblical community, grow in Christian maturity, and multiply disciples and churches both locally and globally. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. Now let's join Pastor Jeremy for today's message. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, as we continue to worship the Lord together this morning through His Word. And I want to ask you a question as we begin diving into Acts where we have been at, Acts chapter 20. I want to ask you a question this morning, and it's this. Why do we do this every Sunday? Why is it that you would wake up early on a Sunday morning when you could sleep in and come to this place with your children, uh, maybe with other children around us, uh, that you would wake up and give half of your day to... Gathering here with a bunch of people to sing and to hear someone give a message. Why do we do that every Sunday? Why do we pray, study God's word? And, and maybe even deeper than that, why Sunday? Does it have to be Sunday? Is there any particular value to gathering on this day in this place? Those are important questions. Questions that we often neglect as we come and do the same thing that we've done week after week. The question is, why do we do what we do? Well, we've been seeing in the book of Acts two incredible themes. Just to remind you at the risk of being, again, a broken record. One of those themes being the resistance of the culture to the gospel. And we live in a day, not only here as we look in the book of Acts, but we live in a day in which... The culture is resisting the gospel in greater ways than we've ever seen it before here in our nation. And we can certainly relate with that theme. The other theme that we've been seeing over and over throughout the book of Acts is the resilience of the gospel. Not just resistance to it, but the resilience of it. The fact that it never stops, it never quits, it never fails. And the church that engages in the mission of God also is sustained the resilience of this New Testament church to continue to do the work that God has called them to. And as I've said to you each and every week, the mission ultimately goes on. And I know that that sounds like a broken record, but I want to keep encouraging you because there is a very real temptation, at least in our culture, in the day in which we're living, to quit and to think that somehow what we're doing is not effective or it doesn't matter, or it's old-fashioned, or archaic, or dated. And I want to just encourage you this morning that God's Word never changes, and the mission has not changed for 2,000 years. Our context has changed, our world has changed, but we must continue to proclaim the same gospel that we have for 2,000 years. And it is still the power of God unto salvation to all who believe. Do you believe that this morning? Believe it enough that we are to obey what God calls us to be and to do in His Word. I love this phrase. And and again, a broken record, but I keep reading this over and over again. And it's encouragement. The Word of God continued to increase 
and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. And that still can happen today when the church is faithful to the mission that God has given us. So we come back to God's word again in Acts chapter 20. And we see another place of resistance and resilience that I hope will be instructive to us this morning. Last week we were in Ephesus, you'll recall. There was a great riot in Acts chapter 19. Paul did not respond in kind to this riot. He didn't start his own riot. He didn't go in and try to settle everybody down. On the, on the contrary, he was instead quietly faithful to what God had called him to do and to be. Just simply obedient, leading the church. And then we fast forward to a story just a few months later, whenever Paul was passing by Ephesus again, and Paul called the Ephesian elders to himself. He was there at Miletus, and he instructed them. He told them that they were to continue to be quietly faithful as well among the church there at Ephesus, as they led. Just continue to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And so in between those two stories, Acts 19, Acts 20, we find nested these 12 verses right at the beginning of Acts 20 that we skipped over. And yet they're incredibly helpful for us this morning. So if you have found your place, let me invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. As we consider that question, what does it look like for the church to be quietly faithful? And why is it that it would look like this every single Sunday? Acts chapter 20 and verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided... To return to Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And verse 7 says that on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. Let's pray. God, we thank you that we can come to your word this morning. You have been so gracious to us and that you have not left us without your voice, without your expectations in our lives, without the word that produces faith. You've 
You've given us your holy, inspired, written word that we might know who you are and how we can be saved and what you desire from your people. And so I pray that we would humble ourselves before your word this morning and that we would be instructed in how to live as Christians among a world in which there is great resistance to the gospel. I pray that by your word, through your Holy Spirit, that you would stir up in our hearts great faith and great resilience in the world in which we live. Because this gospel is a treasure in earthen vessels and we are those vessels. And so may we hold this gospel as a treasure. May we be faithful to what you've called us to be and to do. May we be obedient and may you be glorified in our lives. I pray that we would see this resurrection story and be reminded of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that anyone who puts their faith and trust in Him might be saved. And so, if there's one here who's never trusted in Christ this morning, may you call them to repentance and faith. And Lord, I pray that they would be born again by Your Spirit, changed forever, forgiven of their sins, and receive eternal life. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated this morning. Well, there is a lot in the first six verses of chapter 20. It's just packed in, not in terms of content, because if you read, there's not a lot of detail. In fact, it's it's striking how much Luke has been this one who's given us so much detail at the beginning. And he seems as the story is repeating itself to tear off that detail to some degree, to get more succinct and, and compact with what he's telling us. I don't think that he's doing this just simply to leave out details. I I think that he's shifting the emphasis as we near the end of Acts so that we might understand that this story of resistance and resilience that is repeating itself over and over shines a gigantic spotlight on the nations and the call to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And so a lot happened. If you want a little bit more background on what happened here in Acts chapter 20, these first six verses, you might turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 through 7 and read through those seven chapters. It gives some helpful detail about this account here and gives some greater detail as far as what's going on. But Luke didn't intend for us to dwell on those details. And though he didn't intend us to dwell, I think that it's helpful for us to have a little bit of background at least as we look at this passage in Second Corinthians. So allow me to just give you some details to help us understand and unpack what is here. Paul left Ephesus, and when he left Ephesus, it says that he traveled through Macedonia. And when he traveled through Macedonia, he would have traveled through places like Neapolis and Philippi and Amphipolis. He would have traveled through Apollonia. And through Thessalonica and Berea, these are all places that we've heard before and as we've been studying this book. He's returning on those trips to encourage these churches. From there, it says that he traveled through Greece, or Kai, as it might be called in some places. In the middle of that, that area, we would have seen Corinth. And so Paul made all of these trips. It's a long journey. If you were to see the map this morning of where Paul traveled, I mean, we're talking about weeks and even months of travel time and stay in these different areas. All of that is wrapped up in the first two verses. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when he had gone through those regions that we just described and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. 
And so leading up to Paul arriving back at Corinth, which is where he ultimately lands here, the time frame matches up. There's a pretty high level of tension in the church at Corinth. You've been following our prayer times, at least when we've been able to do them uh, so far over the last couple of weeks, then you'll know we're walking through 1 Corinthians together. And that tension that we've been reading about was right at its pinnacle at these moments. Paul seems to have written a letter to them. By the way, a pretty confrontational letter because 2 Corinthians says in chapter 2 and verse 3 that it was both painful and that it was written with many tears. There were at least three letters written to the Corinthian church. Two of them we have the account of. Uh, One of them we do not have. And it's possible that a fourth was written to the church at Corinth. A lot of correspondence between Paul and this church. Well, this letter, this painful letter was given to Titus. And Paul charged Titus with delivering the letter. And so Titus set out to deliver the letter. And Paul then would leave Ephesus and go to Macedonia and it seems that he's taking his time traveling through these regions because he's waiting for Titus to come back and give him a report. Now, like any good leader, Paul wants kind of an idea of what he's getting himself into before he gets there. That's the idea. And so he's waiting for Titus to tell him how it went. How'd they take that, Titus? Well, he doesn't show up in Macedonia, so Paul continues to travel and ends up at Troas. And this is where ultimately he stops at, uh, or rather he stops at Troas. uh, Titus does not meet him at Troas, so he moves on to Macedonia. And that's where ultimately they catch up with one another toward the end of that uh, trip through Macedonia. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12, it tells us that. So Titus brought Paul the news that the letter had been received well. That the offenders that were that Paul was describing, that they had been disciplined and that the church was being reconciled to Paul, whom they had begun to question whether he even had any authority at all as an apostle. By the way, Paul probably wrote Second Corinthians at this point and sent it on ahead before he himself arrived in Corinth. And then finally, he made it to Corinth. And that's what we see in chapter or in verse the end of verse two, beginning of verse three. He came to Greece there. He spent three months. Three months. By the way, this was his final visit to Corinth, and it probably took place in the winter of AD 55 56. So, if you know your history, your biblical history, you'll know that most likely it was during this time when Paul wrote Romans. Furthermore, if we're going to see that this persecution is very real in this area, not just from the church, but from the outside world. Paul comes back and or rather Luke comes back and he tells us that this persecution of the Jews had finally reached its peak. It begins to come full circle. These Jews, Paul had already seen at Corinth and here they come persecuting him again. Verse three says that when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria and he decided to return uh, through Macedonia. So he'd already left the opposition of the uh, he had already faced, rather, the opposition of the Corinthian Jews at one point, And now it happens again. And he decides, as a result of the persecution, to go a different direction. Now, if you're following this book, you're going to see something that seems to be a recurring pattern. The resistance of those who are resistant to the gospel, God keeps using that resistance to steer where the gospel is going to go next. It happened the first time in uh, the book of Acts, or in the book of Acts, when Stephen was martyred. Do you remember that story? 
And God used that martyrdom and it was Paul who was uh, consenting of his death or Saul at the time. And so we know that all of this persecution is actually being used by God to steer the gospel, both as a means to serve the mission of Christ and serve the mission, therefore, of the church. And so Paul is going and he's going through and he's strengthening the church and he's proclaiming the gospel and he's making disciples. Then verse four gives us a list of people that went along with Paul. And that's helpful. Because as we'll see, not this week, but in the coming weeks, as we continue throughout this book, what we'll see is that Paul had on his heart this collection, this offering that he'd been taking up from all of the churches. And this list of people that were traveling companions are likely going along for some protection, I would imagine. He, he's got a band of merry men along with him. But at the same time, if you read through these men and you look at their background, you'll find that they're all from different churches, different areas, and their representatives. Because all of these churches have given toward this collection, and Paul wants to bring them, we know, 1 Corinthians tells us, he wants to bring them as a delegation to give this offering to the believers at Corinth. And so verse 5 goes on to say, These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas, But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread or Passover. And in five days, we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. And notice that there's a unique shift right here in verse six. It says, but we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. This is the beginning of a second section. There's three of these. They're called the we narratives. It's an indication that the writer of Acts is actually along with them on the journey, that he's an eyewitness. And so we know that Luke was there as well. And Luke seems to fast forward through all of the details of the story, of the trip, of the journey, at least in this part of the world. But he makes a stop and gives us some details from Troas. Notably, Troas was also stopped at before. Do you remember what happened at Troas before? Paul was going about his way trying to plan his own route on the missionary journey number two. And right there in the middle of the missionary journey, after he'd basically been kicked out of every town that he went into, he has this vision. Jesus comes to him at Troas and Paul receives the Macedonian call. Something about Troas was unique, and we could read a lot into that, but at least we need to realize that something, some, some encounter with God was happening at Troas, and these were marked moments, not because Troas was in a unique place, but because God was doing a unique thing. And so we see this picture from Luke, and he shows us this unique picture at Troas. What is exactly what is it exactly that he shows us? Notice it in verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. We see them praying, we see them studying scripture, we see them eating together, we see them taking the Lord's Supper together. All of this happened on the first day of the week. Very first day. They spent a week in Troas, verse 6 tells us. Probably waiting on their ship. It wasn't, you couldn't just rent a car or call an Uber. You, you had to wait 
on your mode of transportation. And so they did. They waited. And the ship comes in. But on the very last day that they're there, the last day of the trip, which happens to be a Sunday, the first day of the week, Paul meets with the Christians. And what are they doing? They're worshiping. This is what Luke pauses to highlight at Troas. He skips the resistance. He skips the evangelism, which is not necessarily meaning it's not happening. He just skips it. He skips the disciple making. He skips the projects. He skips all the plans. He skips all of the, the, the hype around what's happening in the New Testament world. And he just simply gives this small, faithful, quiet picture of worship. He doesn't tell us of any of the other events at Troas. But he simply tells us about an event that's similar to the Macedonian call in that not Paul here having an encounter with Jesus, but Jesus is actually meeting with his church through the preached word. And this is only one of two events that Luke records between the resistance of the Jews driving him out of Corinth and the resistance of the Jews leading uh, him into, or when he gets into Asia, leading him to be arrested there in Jerusalem. The other event is, of course, the one that we looked at last week. When, P, when Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself, and he instructs them particularly about their keeping watch over the flock of God. And their preaching sound doctrine. He's giving them instruction with regard to worship. And here's what we see along the way. Vividly demonstrated here at Troas, but never ceasing from beginning to end. We see not only the resilience of the gospel, but the resilience of Christian worship. It never stops. That's the scene here at Troas. Amidst heavy persecution, the church never failed to gather for worship. Never. In fact, not only did they gather... But they treasured it. Did you notice that? They couldn't wait to be together and to stay together. They didn't want to leave because God was there and the word was being proclaimed. Paul knew that he was going the very next day to Jerusalem and there was going to be a great persecution there. And so Paul made it a priority. If I'm going to face persecution, I've got to be in worship. He is running from persecution, don't forget. And in order to gain encouragement, he goes back to the people of God in order to be encouraged and strengthened and built up. He didn't want to miss worship. Similar to the night before Jesus was crucified, isn't it? The night of his arrest. Do you remember those intimate moments with the disciples there in the Garden of Gethsemane? I've been to that place thinking on that moment when Jesus gathered with his people. The reality that that is a picture Of Christian worship every single time we gather as God's people on the Lord's day. They didn't want to leave. The Bible says that they even gathered there until midnight. You see, the church treasured their time together in worship. Back to the question I asked you at the beginning. Why do we do this every Sunday? Why do we gather here in this place and meet And hear the word preached. Why on Sunday? 
Why every week? Why not once a month? Why is it so important that you take time out of your week and be here together with God's people? This on Sunday is one of the earliest references to Christians meeting on a Sunday for worship. The first day of the week. Now, it's likely possible, even likely that Christians may have continued to observe the Jewish Sabbath as well. But eventually this becomes the norm. The resurrection day, the day that Jesus rose from the dead, is the sole day of worship for Christians throughout church history. From the New Testament until now. This has been the case for 2,000 years. It is not a new invention that the church gathers together on Sunday. This is the Lord's day. And it was treasured. Especially amidst persecution. You know why? Because they realized not only were they being faithful to their master, to Jesus Christ, they were strengthening themselves for facing the world that they had to live in. They could not face that day and age without being together for worship once every week at least. And they treasured that time together every week. So why do we do this every Sunday? Gather here and sing, pray, study the word. The reason is this. The Lord's Day is a precious gift to the church. And it should be treasured as God's people gather to worship Him. The Lord's Day is a precious gift to the church. And it should absolutely be treasured as God's people gather to worship Him. You might say, does it have to be on a Sunday? Well, it cannot be ignored that the church was so compelled by the resurrection of Jesus and the implications of that resurrection in the local church that the day Jesus rose from the dead became the day of worship for 2,000 years. Where the church every Sunday said, as we sang this morning, this is the day that the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. So on the testimony of this event... And on the testimony of church history, history, I would say to you that we worship together on Sunday as God's people as we set aside the Lord's day for Him and for the honor of His name. And notice how rhythmic this was, not only for the early church, but what it should be for us. It says on the first day of the week when we gathered together. And then he doesn't give any more details. He didn't take time to explain, hey, by the way, the church has started meeting on Sundays now. He didn't take time to explain, hey, the church gathers every week, so make sure you come and be a part of this. It was assumed. Why? Because it was the natural, rhythmic practice of the church. You might call it the Sunday worship gathering. And for them, the Lord's Day was a precious gift to be treasured. And then when you see the connection in the text to Christian worship and cultural resistance, it becomes pretty clear that this is one of the mechanisms, if not the primary mechanism, through which God sustained them amidst a very heavy persecution. Encouraged them, guarded them, built them up through the worship of the local church. This is why, as a church, this is the very first thing that we emphasize in our vision. Because the call... The call to worship is biblical. Furthermore, 
notice that it was a physical gathering. It was not a gathering where they simply wrote letters back and forth. They didn't have Facebook. It wasn't a gathering just simply online. It wasn't a virtual gathering. There were times whenever Paul communicated with the church virtually through letters. And that had to happen just by nature of instruction and distance. The same way for us, there may be seasons or times in your life where you're not able to physically come to church. But that is not only a help, or that is only rather a helpful addition to the physical gathering. It can never be an equal replacement for the physical gathering. You can never be a couch Christian. It's not the call on our lives. The call on our lives is to gather with God's people. So why do we do this every Sunday? We gather here and we treasure this time because it's a precious time. A gift from the Lord. And it's a rhythm. Every week. I'm not suggesting legalism. Or you got to be in church every Sunday and if you miss a Sunday, all the shame of our church is going to come heaping down on your head. It's not what I'm saying at all. But what I'm saying is, if you are physically able... That you as a believer ought to make a priority of gathering physically with God's people every single week. Priority. And sometimes that's hard. Sometimes it's hard to get up in the mornings. Sometimes it's hard to gather children. Sometimes it's hard to sit through long preaching. And then they got kids there. And I, I get that. I, I totally Five kids of our... We get that. But the priority of being together. It's important. Well, Troas is a glimpse into that. And what I want to do today is give you four reasons why this should be treasured. They're here in the passage for you this morning. But there are four reasons why we should treasure the gathering of God's people. Number one, the Sunday worship gathering should be treasured because the word of Christ will be preached. That's why. Should be treasured because the word of Christ will be preached. Verse seven. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, primary thought here, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he proclaimed his speech until midnight. We know that this is preaching from the context. He's not just giving a casual talk. He's proclaiming the word to them and encouraging them from the Bible. If there is one thing... That we as God's people must insist on and value at Southwide Baptist Church, it is this. That we have no third story windows in any building. Some of you will get that in a minute. I'm only halfway kidding. Some of you are already saying this preacher we got is just like Paul. He goes on and on and on and on till midnight. I think Luke's probably jabbing Paul a little bit with his statement here. But seriously, I, I do want to respect, I, I value your time and the time that we spend together greatly. I, I don't want to take that for granted. And that's a challenge every week because there's so much here to feast on in Scripture. There really is. It's a struggle to fit all of the glorious truths into the short time that we have together. And so I hope that that finds you studying God's Word on your own and being a part of a connect group where you can study the Bible more. And so I'm thankful I'm thankful that we have a church body that is so gracious 
that spends less time measuring the length of the sermon and more time measuring the faithfulness of the sermon to the Bible. But if there's one thing that we must insist on, in all kidding aside, and value, it is this. That the Word of God always be preached faithfully from this pulpit. We must be convicted toward that end. And if there is one thing we must pray for as God's people, it is this. That we would have an insatiable hunger for God's Word together that listens as if there is no midnight. Hanging on every moment with a deep desire to know God as His Word is proclaimed. That should be our prayer. There does seem to be a a focus here in this passage. There doesn't seem to be any restlessness. We don't see people disengaged. We see people loving and wanting more of God's Word. Too often, so many things distract us from the Word, from church programs, to even the music. When God's Word is what draws the New Testament to gather together. And so, God's people wanted God's Word. And God's Word was preached. That's why this is valued. Secondly, why should the church treasure the Sunday worship gathering? The Sunday worship gathering should be treasured because the death of Christ will be remembered. The death of Christ will be remembered. It's one of the only places in all of the world, maybe the only place in all of the world, where people gather together and they are incredibly overjoyed at the death of someone. The death, namely, of Jesus. Verse 7, on the first day of the week, when we gathered together to break bread. It's a reference to the Lord's Supper. It's not just eating here. It's breaking the bread and drinking the the cup. It is to remember the Lord's death. Jesus died for us. And it seems, at least in the passage, that for the New Testament church, the Lord's Supper was taken every single Sunday. That's what they did. They took the Lord's Supper, they prayed, they sang, and they studied the Word. This was their their mode of worship, their pattern of worship. I, I think there's some liberty there to make decisions based on the church that that we're in, based on how we serve the Lord together. First Corinthians 11 says, For as often as you eat this body and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We make a practice here of about once a quarter. Taking the Lord's Supper, sometimes more often than that. Just depending on where we are in the Word. So the Lord's Supper is a practice, and it's a practice for us. And it's a practice that we use in order to remember the Lord's death. When we receive the bread and the cup, we are reminded that Jesus took the full cup of the Father's wrath for us and that His body was broken for us. That He paid our debt. The reality of substitutionary atonement teaches that Jesus died in our place and it's His blood and His blood alone that can cleanse anyone from sin. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sins. And we must put our faith and trust in Him. And every time we partake of the Lord's Supper, and any time we gather together, we're remembering the Lord's death. This is why we sing about the cross. And we're reminded of what Jesus did for us. The fact is, He did that 
And his blood is available as an atonement for anyone, anyone who would trust him by faith. The substance of what they're remembering is the Lord's death. Third, the Sunday worship gathering should be treasured because the life of Christ will be celebrated. The life of Christ will be celebrated. Really weird story. And if I was preaching until midnight and somebody fell out of a window ledge and died, especially if it was one of your kids, I, I just am confident you would be highly upset with me. <laughs> um, so this little boy, young, young boy, it says, was sitting in a third story window ledge. By, by the way, parents, don't let your kids do that. But anyway, sitting in a third story window ledge, it's probably after midnight. I, or it's probably close to midnight at this point. All these lamps are burning. It's probably hot in there. I mean, have you ever been just warm, full, full stomach, and just, man, you can't even keep your eyes open? This kid starts to nod off, and he falls out of the window and dies. And if you think I'm kidding you, it says he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. Not sleeping, not half dead, not revivable. There's no CPR at this point. He's dead. And the story goes on that Paul comes and bends down over his body, takes him up in his arms and says, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. And God right there in the midst of the church does a resurrection miracle. Can you believe it? (laughs) I don't know what excuses you have to not study the word very long, but I think the death of your son would be a very good excuse. And yet God says, I'm going to take that excuse off the table. I'm going to raise him to life. Amazingly, not only did he raise this little boy to life, he did it just after Passover. Did you notice that? This is Easter, could have been Easter Sunday in Troas. Peter is, or rather Paul is preaching and there's a resurrection miracle in the middle of the church. It's not the only time that something like this happened. Jesus raised the widow's son in Luke 7, Jairus' daughter, Luke 8, Lazarus, Lazarus in John 11, And then you remember the story of Dorcas, restoration of Dorcas through Peter in Acts chapter 9. This is happening. It's not the norm, but it happens in very real ways in order that they might know that it's God who raised them from the dead. And in order that it might point to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In fact, Jesus in John 11 explicitly says that the resurrection of Lazarus was pointing to his own resurrection from the dead. So the reality is, here at Troas, these people are being reminded that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. That's good news. Every time they gather, it is the celebration of the resurrected life of Jesus and our resurrected life in Him. Amen? No longer I will die, but no longer will I die forever. I will live forever with God in heaven. Praise the Lord for this good news today because Jesus died for me and rose again. And in his resurrection, I have been raised to new life. Brother Curtis, love that song that we sing, that we sing. Another song that we sing about death being arrested. Death has no hold on the Christian anymore because we're climbing out of that grave. Amen, Brother Curtis. We're climbing out of that grave one day. Jesus is going to raise us to life. And number five or number four, rather. Final reason this morning that we see in the text. The Sunday worship gathering should be treasured. Why? Because the people of Christ will be together. So good. 
says in verse 11. When they had, when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. Seems like after the formal worship service was over, Paul continues to sit at a table, have a cup of coffee, maybe a donut. Maybe they're eating together a full meal. Meal's over, they bring the cheesecake because they're good Southern Baptists. They bring something for dessert. It's almost lunchtime. Mm. But there they are. And they hang out. And it's until daybreak. This is their family. It's their home. These people, listen, have left lives and families and homes. They have been outcasts. They have been tortured. They have been hated. They've been abused. They've been called names. This is their home. This is their family now. And I would say to you this morning, Southside Baptist Church, this is our family. It's our family. I remember a couple of Sunday afternoons ago or so now that we gathered at um, the Charlton's home. And I want you guys to know how precious that time was. I don't, I don't know if you realize just how precious that time was of gathering together with God's people. But just to be able to sit together and talk and enjoy one another. Getting into conversations about the Bible. Discussing theology. Discussing ministry and just sharing in one another's lives. Can I tell you that this is what the church looked like in the New Testament? And it was a miracle. It's a miracle. Why? Because they had been restored to one another through the blood of the cross. Like this kind of fellowship, koinonia, Holy Spirit driven fellowship does not happen apart from Jesus. And yet when Jesus comes into someone's life and into the life of a body of people, here's what happens. They begin to love one another and they can't get enough of being together. I love it whenever we have to drive people out of this building with sticks because they don't want to leave. I love it. I love it. My wife hates me, but I love it. I love it. Why? Because let's just stay and dwell and spend time together. Because I love you and you love me and start seeing Barney there. But I, I love you guys. I love you guys. And the love of Christ, the love of Christ is what is uniting our hearts. We're friends. We're co-laborers. We get the chance to be here. Don't neglect it. Don't neglect it. And so this is a precious gift. The Lord's Day is a precious gift and we should treasure it as God's people. So I want to close with two questions this morning. One is this. Do you actually treasure the Lord's Day for the reasons we just talked about? Do you treasure the Lord's Day at all and do you treasure it for the reasons we get we just talked about? That we 
We get to celebrate the life of Jesus. And we get to be together. We get to remember the death of Christ. And we get to hear the word preached. Is that, is that the reason you come to church? The second question is this. Can you, can you treasure the Lord today for these reasons? What, what do I mean by that? Do you understand the Bible as a natural man where you reject the things of God? Do you see the death of Christ as foolishness and His resurrection as a myth? Or at least something that doesn't matter much to your life? And do you despise the church of God? You see, that by definition is what it means to be lost. And you cannot treasure the Lord's day for these reasons. Jesus died in order that you might be forgiven of those sins and cleansed and born again so that you might love the things of God with a new heart and so that you might be eternally forgiven and spend forever worshiping with the people of God in a place called heaven. Today you can trust in Jesus by faith and be saved if you'll simply place your faith and trust in Him as your Lord and Savior. With every head bowed and every eye closed this morning, we want to call you to do that. We want to call you in just a few moments when this altar is open. Stephanie's going to begin to play. The song is Jesus paid it all, and He did. He paid it all that you and I might be saved. And so that we might be restored to God and to one another and that this body might be His bride. Presented to Him one day faultless. Do you know Him today as your Lord and Savior? You trusted in Jesus by faith. Maybe others of you in this room, you just simply are not devoted to the family of God, the people of God. And you need to commit today to be devoted again. Maybe some of you this morning are not even members of a church anywhere, or this church or maybe another church and God is just moving on your heart. And you need to respond today to be a part of God's family wherever He's called you to be. And so in just a few moments when we stand, this altar is going to be open. Whatever the response is in your life and your heart this morning as God leads you, decide and you obey Him this morning because now is the time. Would you stand with me all across this room? As the altar opens, I'm going to pray. Our invitation will begin. Lord, I pray that You'd have Your way in our hearts and in this place, that we'd be obedient to You. Thank You, Jesus, for paying for our sins. We pray that today that people will respond in faith toward You. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You come this morning, even as Stephanie begins to play. You've been listening to the Southwide Baptist Church Podcast with Pastor Jeremy Lewis. For more information about our church, please visit www.southwidebaptist.com. We also invite you to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram by searching for Southwide BC. Thank you for listening, and may you continue to worship, connect, grow, and multiply as you follow Jesus Christ.